Happy holidays to all our listeners, and welcome to our podcast, Tis But a Scratch, Fact and Fiction About the Middle Ages. I'm your host, Professor Richard Abels. My co-host, partner for life and inspiration for all things medieval, is my wife, Ellen. Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Kwanzaa, and Happy New Year to you and yours. As our listeners may have already gathered from earlier episodes, Ellen and I are secular Jews. Ellen is a convert to Reformed Judaism, and I am, at least according to Ancestry.com, 100% Ashkenazi Jewish. Ellen grew up celebrating Christmas, and I grew up celebrating Hanukkah. For me, Christmas Day meant dinner at a Chinese restaurant and maybe a movie. Hanukkah meant eight days of gifts, lighting the menorah, good eats, playing the dreidel game, chocolate, Hanukkah, gelt, and family time. With apologies to Adam Sandler, Christians had by far the better songs. But I was comforted that some of the most popular Christmas songs were written by Jews. Irving Berlin's White Christmas, Mel Torme's Christmas Song, or Chestnuts Roasting on an Open Fire. George Weil and Eddie Pola's It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year, and Johnny Marks' A Holly Jolly Christmas, and his Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. All these written by Jews. As I grew older and began to learn more about the history of religions, I began to have doubts about why we Jews in the U.S., make such a big deal about Hanukkah. For American Jews, Hanukkah is right up there with the three big Jewish holidays, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Passover. But it shouldn't be. Probably it's closer to Purim, as both holidays celebrate the Jewish people overcoming enemies bent on wiping us out. Hanukkah is the festival of lights. It celebrates a miracle that is said to have occurred in 164 BCE, when Jewish rebels against rule of the Hellenistic Seleucid Empire took Jerusalem and re-sanctified the Second Temple. The temple had been religiously polluted by Emperor Antiochus IV Epiphanes three years before when he had an altar to Zeus erected within it. This was part of a larger program by Antiochus to suppress or more accurately revise Jewish religious practices to bring them in line with Hellenistic religion and culture. Our best source for these matters is the 1st century CE Jewish historian and general Josephus. Josephus tells us that Antiochus mistook an internal dispute between two claimants to the Jewish high priesthood, both of whom had bribed him and both of whom were Hellenized Jews, for the beginnings of a Jewish uprising. Already engaged in an unsuccessful war against the rival Ptolemaic dynasty of Egypt, Antiochus decided to take decisive action to forestall the rebellion. According to Josephus, quote, And when the king had built an idol altar upon God's altar, he slew swine upon it, and offered a sacrifice neither according to the law nor the Jewish religious worship in that country. He also compelled the Jewish people to forsake the worship which they paid their own God, and to adore those whom he took to be gods, and made them build temples and raise idol altars in every city and village, and offer swine upon them every day. He also commanded them not to circumcise their sons, and threatened to punish any that should be found to have transgressed his injunction. I can understand their injunction against circumcision. To judge from statues, Hellenistic Greeks believed the naked male body to be beautiful, and circumcision must have seemed an act of mutilation. The Romans who respected ancient religions tolerated circumcision when they later ruled Judea. 
but they also considered it to be a perverse superstition. Okay. The king also appointed overseers to compel the Jews to do what he commanded. And indeed, there were many Jews who complied with the king's commands, either voluntarily or out of fear of the penalty announced for disobedience. But the best men, those with the noblest souls, paid greater respect to the customs of their country than to the orders of the king, and were not deterred by the punishments with which the king threatened the disobedient. Because of that, every day these noblemen suffered great miseries and bitter torments. They were whipped with rods, their bodies were torn to pieces, and they were crucified while they were still alive. The king also ordered women who had their sons circumcised to be strangled along with their babies. As they suffered upon the crosses, he had the bodies of their sons hung about their necks. If any sacred book or scroll of the law was found, it was destroyed, and those who possessed them miserably perished also. Ew. I mean, how seriously should we take these atrocity stories? I think it's probably exaggerated. Josephus wrote Antiquities of the Jews to present Jews in a favorable light to his first-century Hellenistic audience. These atrocities provide an explanation for the Maccabean revolt with which those readers might sympathize. I have no doubt that Antiochus IV prohibited the ritual of circumcision and ordered pagan temples and altars erected. The sacrifice of pigs upon these altars was an obvious in-your-face to Jewish ritual food taboos, which must have seemed as irrational to the Hellenistic Greeks as circumcision. Josephus' acknowledgment that many Jews complied with Antiochus' commands voluntarily is telling. But more didn't, and the result was that Antiochus precipitated the very Jewish uprising he was working to nip in the bud. The revolt began when a Jewish priest named Mattathias of the Hasmonean clan killed another Jewish priest as he prepared to sacrifice a pig on the altar dedicated to Zeus. Mattathias and his sons fled into the desert and took refuge in caves. Many others followed them, and what began as local resistance grew into a national uprising. Mattathias died soon after, but leadership of the revolt was assumed by his son, Judas Maccabee, Judah the Hammer. Like Charles Martel. Although it was to be a decade before the Jewish revolt was fully successful, within three years, Judah's army was able to enter Jerusalem and recover the temple for Jewish worship. The ritual of re-sanctification, rededication of the temple took eight days. And now we finally come to the miracle. The story is that when they entered the temple, they discovered only a single container of ritual olive oil, still enclosed with the chief rabbi's seal. This was enough for just a single night but it lasted for a full eight days, just enough time for the Jewish priest to be able to obtain a whole new batch of sanctified olive oil. And this miracle is commemorated with the lighting of the menorah, a nine-branch candelabrum. As odd as it sounds, one of my most prized family possessions is a hand-wrought menorah that my grandmother somehow acquired near Springfield, Massachusetts during the Great Depression. Remember how surprised I was when you first showed the menorah to me? It's literally unique. Although the base is machine-made, the branches and the Jewish star at the center are all hand-wrought. It really is odd that this is a family heirloom from the Irish Catholic side of the family. 
Menorahs were part of my entire childhood. My grandparents were Orthodox Jews, and although my parents grew up in entirely Jewish neighborhoods in Brooklyn, they became secular Jews. The only time I remember my father or mother going to a synagogue was for my bar mitzvah. Nevertheless, we celebrated Hanukkah. I grew up lighting menorah candles and receiving gifts for each of the eight days. But even as a kid, the miracle at the center of Hanukkah never struck me as all that impressive. It's certainly not in the same league as parting the Red Sea. As I grew older, I discovered that the story of the miracle doesn't even appear in any of the earliest sources for the events. The first and second books of the Maccabees, which were written around 100 BCE, and Josephus's The Antiquities of the Jews, written for a Roman audience around 94 CE. The first mention of the miracle occurs in the Megalot Antiochus, the scroll of Antiochus, written perhaps as early as the 2nd century CE, and appears in the Gemara portion of the Babylonian Talmud, which was written down around 500 CE. The Talmud, in case some of our listeners don't know, is the central text of Rabbinic Judaism. It comprises the Mishnah, the oral religious law of Rabbinic Judaism, which was first committed in writing in the early 3rd century, and the Gemara, rabbinic analysis and debate over the meaning of the Torah, both written and oral. When I taught Western and World Civ, I would explain to my students who thought that by reading the Old Testament, they were getting the straight dope on Judaism, that the relationship between the Talmud and the Torah is very similar to the relationship between the U.S. Constitution and all of constitutional law. You don't really understand the Constitution unless you understand how it has been interpreted. Over the years, you seem to have become less and less enthusiastic about celebrating Hanukkah. Yeah, that's true. It's not because I think that it's a bogus Jewish festival. As a festival, it really belongs on the same perch as Sukkot and Purim. My problem is that, at least in the U.S., it has become the Jewish Christmas. I can understand why. As a Jewish kid growing up, I would have been a lot more envious of my Christian friends if I didn't have a holiday in which I would get eight gifts. Okay, little gifts, but still eight of them. Christians may have the Christmas tree and Christmas decoration, but we have a menorah, and some Jewish families even had a Hanukkah bush. We didn't, but I know some who did. But Hanukkah shouldn't be the Jewish Christmas. Christmas is one of the major holidays in the Christian religious calendar, second only to Easter. Hanukkah doesn't have that status. A holiday celebrating the resistance of Jews to assimilation has become, in the U.S., an emblem of American Jewish assimilation into the dominant Christian culture. And that strikes me as highly ironic. Hanukkah celebrates the Maccabean rebellion against not only Hellenistic rule, but Jewish assimilation into the Hellenistic culture. The Maccabees regarded Hellenized Jews as great an enemy as pagan Greeks, and I'm the modern American version of a Hellenized Jew. If you remember, years ago when we belonged to a Reformed Jewish temple, after a sermon about the Hanukkah spirit by the rabbi, I told his wife, the Rebetzin, that I had trouble getting motivated to celebrate the Maccabees, a bunch of people who would have, you know, put us all uh, Reformed Jews to death. 
And, of course, the Repetin just glared at me. Yeah, I loved your relationship with her. She glared at you equally after you told her that the TV show Buffy the Vampire Slayer wasn't really about magic and demons, but was a metaphor. Several metaphors. And the idea that high school was um, located over the mouth of hell would have explained so much for many of us. Again. I understand from personal experience why Hanukkah is so important to American Jewish kids and their parents. The leaders of the Chabad Lubavitch movement of Orthodox Judaism are equally aware of the importance of Hanukkah to secular American Jews. Unlike other Hasidim groups who segregate themselves from the secular culture, Chabad has a tradition of outreach. Chabad regards it as a mitzvah, a blessing, to recall to the faith non-religious Jews, and this has led to Chabad's complex relationship with Hanukkah. On the one hand, Chabad understands the religious meaning of Hanukkah and its status in the Jewish festival calendar. But beginning in the 1970s, they began to actively encourage public celebrations of Hanukkah. They believed that they could use the popularity of Hanukkah among secular Jews as an instrument to reach them. I'm sure that they were also aware of the irony of using Hanukkah in this fashion. Chabad is as aware as the Maccabees were of the dangerous attraction that secularism holds for Jews living in an alien religious culture. Mr. Z. Freeman wrote a very interesting article for the Chabad.com website entitled, Why Couldn't Jews and Greeks Just Get Along? Mr. Freeman credits the Greeks with being universalists, syncretists, and rationalists. Jews, he also acknowledges, are syncretists, at least to an extent. Quote, Whatever your grandmother told you, he writes, Abraham did not smear the gefilte fish with crane. End quote. Crane? Gefilte fish, I know, but crane? Horseradish. Oh, okay. So why couldn't the Hellenistic Greeks and Jews compromise? The Hasidic answer is that the problem is that the Hellenistic Greeks were rationalists. They couldn't fathom or accept the Jewish monotheism that rejected the very existence of all other gods or the conception of an ineffable god beyond human comprehension. It's telling that the practices that Antiochus singled out for suppression were those that struck the Greeks as just plain irrational, why would you mutilate your male babies? Why can't you eat something as delicious as pork or even handle a pig? Why do you get so upset when I worship my gods? I don't object to you worshiping yours. Again, I find it ironic that Chabad has elevated Hanukkah into a major Jewish holiday as a lure to bring secular Jews back into the fold. It's a recognition of the deadly attraction of assimilation into a dominant culture. Mr. Freeman quotes the venerated late Lubavitcher Rebbe Menachem Mendel Schneerson, quote, In Hebrew, the name for ancient Greece, Yavang, has another meaning, quicksand. Water mixes with sand, dirt, and clay. You step in it, and you can't get out. The more you try to climb up, the further down you go. That's assimilation. I've toyed with the idea of writing a book entitled From Maccabees to Wannabes, A History of Jewish Assimilation, which would have a chapter in it on Hanukkah. Starting your personal war on Hanukkah. Now, if Hanukkah were a pagan festival like Christmas is... Oh, stop. 
I know that you're channeling Cromwell and the Puritans of New England when you say that, but still. Let's just say happy holidays, regardless of how and why you celebrate them. But you did promise a medieval historian's reflection on Hanukkah. So, was Hanukkah celebrated in the Middle Ages? It was, and it was celebrated as a really festive holiday. I should begin with a confession. I'm not an expert on medieval Jewish life, or for that matter, on medieval Jewish festivals. I'm going to be drawing on the research and expertise of scholars such as Dr. Kate Stevenson and Dr. Susan Weingarten. As I said, Hanukkah was celebrated by the Jewish communities of medieval Western Europe, in fact, to a greater extent than in early Judaism. Isn't Hanukkah mentioned in the Talmud? Only in a couple of places, and the holiday is not sanctioned by Scripture. The two books of the Maccabees are Jewish apocrypha. They are not part of the canonical Hebrew Bible. They are, however, found in the Septuagint, the 2nd century BCE Greek Old Testament, which held far greater authority among the early Gentile Christian communities than among Jews, whose scribes compiled between the 7th and 10th centuries the canonical Masoretic Old Testament based upon Hebrew texts. So why did Hanukkah become more popular in the Middle Ages, and how is it celebrated? It's easier to explain the how than the why. Hanukkah, like Purim, was a festival rather than a somber holy day. Both were celebrated by public drinking and feasting. That explains a lot right there. (laughs) Yeah. Two Jewish texts from 14th century Provence tell us about the food dishes that were prepared for the Hanukkah celebration. One is a satiric poem called Avon Bohan by a rabbi from all that includes a list of foods consumed on each of the Jewish festivals. The other is a medieval rendition of the Book of Judith called the Megalet Yehudic. What both festivals also shared was a permissive attitude toward female participation. I can understand why that would be true of Purim. After all, Purim celebrates Queen Esther, wife of the Persian great king Ahasuerus for foiling the evil machinations of the royal vizier Haman to kill the Jews. And giving us delicious hamantasha. Hamantasha. And for giving us delicious hamantasha. Kashen. For giving us hamantashen, for God's sake. (laughs) And medieval Hanukkah celebrated similarly the salvation of the Jewish people by another heroine, the beautiful widow Judith, which is why the medieval Megalot Yehudic, the scroll of Judith, is a treasure trove of information about medieval Hanukkah. Wait a minute. Hanukkah celebrates the Hasmonean triumph over the Seleucid king Antiochus. And the last time I checked, the Maccabees were all male. And didn't Judith save the Jews by seducing an Assyrian general, getting him first dead drunk and then cutting off his head? Yeah, that's how it appears in the book of Judas, a deuterocanonical text written probably in the 2nd century BCE in Greek. Deuterocanonical? Yeah. Fancy word meaning a book of Jewish apocrypha accepted as scriptural by the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox Christian churches, but not by Protestants, or for that matter, by Jews. And yes, in the book of Judith, Holofernes is an Assyrian general. But by the Middle Ages, Judith had been transferred in time to the era of the Maccabees, and Holofernes had become a Hellenistic general. Oddly appropriate if the book of Judas was written in the time of the Maccabees, as you seem to suggest. And it probably was. So Hanukkah became a sort of bookend to Purim. 
both celebrated women who saved the Jewish people, and in both cases, by using their feminine wiles and charm, and both proved to be femme fatales, at least as far as Haman and Holofernes were concerned. Medieval rabbis explained that it was because Hanukkah celebrated Judith that women were allowed to participate in the religious ritual of lighting the menorah candles. I would hope so. But what about the Maccabees? I mean, weren't they central to medieval Hanukkah? You know, not as much as in earlier and later times. Why not? I can only speculate about that. My suspicion is that Christians co-opted the Maccabees, making them prototypes of crusaders. By the 12th century, the Maccabees had become Christian heroes. The two books of the Maccabees, after all, part of the Christian scriptural canon, both in the Roman West and the Byzantine East, it was not part of the Hebrew Bible. I think that may be why Hanukkah was recentered on Judith. Like I said, this is pure speculation. Makes sense, though. Okay, but back to food. What kinds of food were considered proper for a medieval Hanukkah celebration? And I'm guessing it wasn't potato latkes or gefilte fish. Alas, no. Alas? We can. <laughs> I like gefilte fish. We could begin with something called levivolt, which are fried pancakes, and with that ever-delicious dish, salted cheese. And the reason for that is because they are both associated with the Judith story. According to the Megalat Yehudic, Judith plied Holofernes with levavot and salted cheese to make him thirsty. He quenched that thirst with cup after cup of wine, finally passing out. Which is when she beheaded it. Ah, uh, the rest is history, or at least it's legend. And the subject for a lot of Renaissance art. Yeah, which is the reason why Judith is probably well known. Other foods included honeyed porridge, okay. pan-fried honey cakes, and boiled dough, sort of like bagels. This accompanied meat dishes. Public drinking was not only permitted, but encouraged. Uh, maybe they kind of missed the point of the story. Don't get drunk if there's a vengeful lady nearby with a knife in her hand. Yeah. Okay, never mind. It was probably more to make the holiday like Purim. These festivals were communal celebrations. This is underscored by a halakhic opinion, a judgment about Judaic law, made by a 13th century German rabbi, Maya ben Baruch of Rothenburg. The rabbi prescribed a year-long fast for any woman whose child died while under her care in a preventable accident. Quote, to fast for a full year without eating meat or drinking wine, Rabbi Maya added, with the exception of Sabbaths, festivals, the new moon, Hanukkah, and Purim, when not only should she refrain from fasting, but she should eat meat and drink wine, end quote. Okay. I noticed that nobody mentioned gift giving. And the reason for that is it wasn't part of Hanukkah in the Middle Ages. It wasn't even part of Hanukkah in America until the late 19th century. Makes sense. Before then, Purim was the holiday on which gifts were exchanged. Gift giving became part of Hanukkah because of Christmas. In the early 19th century, Christmas was a minor holiday in both America and Britain. It grew in importance throughout the 19th century, and in 1870 was made a national holiday by Congress. It was after this that Purim's gift-giving was transferred to Hanukkah. But according to Diane Ashton, Director of American Studies at Rowan University and author of Hanukkah in America, A History, the tradition of exchanging Hanukkah gifts really took off only in the 1950s. At this time, 
Jewish child psychologists as well as rabbis started promoting gifts as a way to make post-Holocaust Jewish kids happy to be Jewish rather than sad about missing out on Christmas, which pretty much returns us to the beginning of this episode. I never thought you'd be the Grinch who ruined Hanukkah. No. If you remember, we gave Hanukkah gifts to the kids until they grew out of it. It's the American Jewish way. Cynical to the end. Still, I hope everyone has a wonderful and safe holiday season. And when I picked up our daughter, Rebecca, to bring her home for the holidays, she informed me that we are lighting the candles in the menorah tonight because, in her words, it's so beautiful. So to our Jewish listeners, Chad Urim Sameach. Happy Festival of Lights. Much better. Until next year, bye for now. Hanukkah is festival of lights. <laughs>